Я вам расскажу за всю Одессу. Эй, Путин, вас никто не верит здесь серьез. Welcome everyone to Geopolitics Decanted. It is Sunday, June 26th. I'm Dmitry Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. We're back this week with Michael Kaufman, one of the top experts on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies program at the Center for Naval Analysis. And we're joined by a new guest, Henry Schlotman, who's been doing some really terrific open source research on social media, on logistics, Russian troop levels, and uh, other elements of this campaign since the start of the war. He's also a seven-year veteran of the U.S. Army. And Mike, let's begin with you. It's been a pretty newsy week, and perhaps we can start with some of the leadership changes that the Russian Ministry of Defense has announced uh, in terms of leaders of the uh, prosecution of this war. Talk to us about some of those changes that we're seeing and what, if anything, you think it means. Well, thanks for having me back. So uh, they're not really new leadership changes. It's more that they're new to us in the sense that it's taken a while to figure out who's actually in charge of what, who has been replaced, um, what does the leadership look like. I don't know, if, for many folks, this may not be that exciting, but for those who do follow the Russian military, it's interesting to try to figure out what's going on at the leadership level. So uh, here's a short summary. The Russian Union started this war divided into four groupings of forces, each one tied to their native military district, that is the district to which they came from, right? So you had East, Central, uh, uh, West, and South. And Eastern Military District started in Phase 1, obviously pursuing the campaign towards Kiev. Central Military District was on the Eastern Riverbank by Cherniv. Western Military District was running Sumy and Kiev Offensive. And South had literally everything else with maybe, you know, almost double the force. Okay. So they are still doing that. And it's a bit hard to figure out which groupings are left. It looks like there's still likely, from my point of view, a southern grouping of forces, a central one, and an eastern one. And uh, the the head of the southern grouping of forces, which was Dvornikov, head of southern military district, is no longer in charge of it. What's happened to him is unclear, but it doesn't look like he's in charge of this operation at all. Uh, the person. So, charged, so you're, you're saying that he was not in charge of the overall campaign, only the South front? Originally, yes. And then everybody thought he was appointed as the overall commander, right? That was the belief, but it was never confirmed. Okay. So there are several questions here, and I'm going to get to them, try to, in, in proper order, but quickly. So first, Dvornikov doesn't really appear to be in charge of anything at this point. Um, it looks like Surovikin, who was the head of Russian aerospace forces, has taken over the southern grouping of forces. For those who don't know, Surovikin is actually a ground forces officer. Um, okay, so it looks like his star is kind of rising. Uh, Lapin is still in charge of the central grouping of forces and had them from the beginning. And then it looks like Zhitko is involved. And there's a debate whether Zhitko is currently the overall commander or if Zhitko's just in charge of the Eastern grouping of forces, it's not clear, okay? Shoigu recently showed up at what looked like an HQ, probably not the real HQ, but, you know, the one they set up for the PR video. And Zhitko was there along with Rutskoy. Colonel General Sergei Rutskov looks like to be the one most consistently present in a coordinating role. Gerasimov's nowhere to be seen at all, actually, in any of this. And my sense is he's probably not necessarily that operationally evolved. It looks like Rutskoy is the person uh, most involved in coordinating between these other officers. And then who's that? And, and t- tell us who he is. Uh, Rutskoy? Well, Rutskoy is essentially, I mean, right now it's actually a good question who he really is in this discussion. Um, you know, Rutskoy is in, in many ways like Gerasimov's vice, right, as, as uh, uh, in, in the chief of general staff. But so it looks to me like he's he's one of the main people. He was the person I actually announced in March, the shift to phase two and the sort of the focus on the Donbass. If you recall, I think March 25th, the MOD announcement. Um, and uh, so so Zhuraev, head of Western military district, seems to be out, too. Haven't seen him in anything in quite some time. And Serdyukov, the head of the Russian Airborne, definitely looks to be out, and he's been replaced by Tupinsky, a different commander, okay, entirely. And we can debate why, quite possibly, it could be 
due to the incredibly high losses that the airborne forces suffered in the earlier phase of the war. But Serdyukov seems to be out uh, as well. So what, what do you think this means? I mean, uh, people are probably getting lost with all these names, but what, what do you think this generally means that uh, Putin is not happy with the campaign, that he's replacing a lot of people, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people? And do you think that there is still sort of one person in charge? Um, has there been? Is there now? Yeah, so, it, I mean, it definitely looks like they're replacing generals and they're replacing commanders. And a lot of that does seem to be tied to performance. Um, I, I, I won't say it doesn't look necessarily evenly spread uh, between uh, these different officers. But, yes, it looks like um, you can interpret it different ways. Like, it's a bit speculative, but it definitely looks like they've replaced some of the initial commanders. It also looks like they've replaced people that we may have thought were placed in charge of the overall operation. I mean, to be honest, if you look at phase one, it's pretty clear how to interpret that as, as a fairly self-evident defeat. And if you look at phase two, it doesn't exactly look like a success story, does it? It looks like a pretty lackluster incremental advance that's now bogged down into attrition war. Where Russian forces are making gains, but certainly not major operational developments or breakthroughs. And as we've talked about this over the past weeks, they've had to consistently make adjustments and not the kind that were driven by success. Got it. You know, one of the things that I've been consistently hearing from senior U.S. administration officials really for the last couple of months since the shift to the Donbass has started is that the Russians were likely to take all of Luhansk Oblast, um, uh, but they're not likely to take much of Donetsk more than, than they had at the beginning of the war. And it certainly looks like with the taking of Severodonetsk this week, uh, there's just one major city left, Lusychansk, that... Um, uh, it's still in Ukrainian hands in the Luhansk Oblast, uh, but in the Donetsk, the advances have, but for the most part, stalled. I think you would agree with that, Mike, right? Um, do, you, do you agree with the, the U.S. assessment that the battle lines, if you will, that we're seeing now uh, with Luhansk mostly in Russian control, maybe they'll, they'll take the rest of it um, in, in the near future, but they're not going to take all of the Donbass? I mean... That's a prediction, yeah, and uh, I'm not usually keen on making those, but I would say it's looking increasingly likely that the Russian military will seize Luhansk Oblast because they're very near to it, and will probably close the pocket around Lysychansk as well. It's looking unlikely that in this offensive they'll be able to take the rest of Donetsk Oblast, right? That looks like increasingly like a lower probability event. And, and that's probably been true for the past several weeks. I think that I think they stand a decent chance of getting to the outskirts uh, on the eastern side of maybe Slavyansk and Krematorsk, but I'm not sure that they'll be able to capture those areas. And nothing's gone very well for them in the south because the battle for the Donbass is kind of a two-piece battlefield, right? There's a whole section south of Apostna down to Donetsk. Um, and, and there, none of their attacks have been particularly successful. So uh, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. And there's still quite a bit of Donbass in terms of administrative area for them to capture in order to claim that as a victory. And I, I doubt they're going to be able to get there, at least in this offensive. All right, Henry, let's bring you in. You've, you've been doing some really terrific work analyzing the, the artillery battle. And uh, as Mike has said in the past, and many others have as well, this has really been a war of artillery, um, really since the beginning of this campaign. What do you make of the situation now? The Russians have expanded a lot of ammunition. There's been some news this week uh, about them taking uh, some ammo from Belarus. Talk to us about that, the importance of that and what this means for their overall campaign on their artillery front. So, yeah, as we kind of all know, uh, Russia relies pretty critically on artillery and fires. When I tried to analyze Russian artillery, I basically, I took kind of the official estimates of BTGs, then I added the artillery brigades and rocket brigades that should theoretically be attached to each CAA that is involved in operations in Eastern Ukraine. And basically I came out to the conclusion that Russia probably has a three to one advantage in systems at least. Once you start talking about rounds expended, it becomes a little more complicated, obviously. And uh, there is the kind of official word out from the Ukrainian government. I forgot what the exact official was, but uh, they said like up to 50,000 rounds per day. And then Ukraine was shooting. 
you know, 5,000 to like 7,000 rounds. Obviously, the 50,000 rounds is probably a bit of an exaggeration, but I kind of went with that number. And basically, it kind of came to the, the amount of being, you know, you have Ukraine having a three to one advantage in systems. And then if you actually you mean Russia, the, Russia having a three to one advantage. Yeah, Russia having the three to one. Sorry. But yes, if you come out to the if you do all the math, basically, it comes out three to one in systems, like about three point five to one in terms of rounds fired per system. And then that's kind of how you you get to the 10 to 1 rounds, Russia versus Ukraine. Now, I'm not sure if I fully believe that. Now, I do believe that generally the advantage in Australia is probably about 3 to 1. But the the rounds is kind of a, a sketchy topic. It's pretty clear that Russia does have at least an advantage in terms of volume of fire and systems. Now, the question then kind of becomes, well, how do these new Western systems that are coming in, you know, HIMARS specifically, how is that going to kind of change the calculus going here? Now, it's not like a huge number of systems, obviously, but they're going to be more effective. Obviously, most of the Russian Soviet legacy equipment relies on optical sighting while, while HIMARS is GPS and more advanced. So, so you know, if you're hi- firing at that rate of fires, even, even if it's not 50,000 per day, you're going to have a couple of issues, right? Uh, one, you're, you're going to consume, obviously, a lot of shells, a lot of rockets, and you're going to need um, to resupply that. Unclear if the uh, Russian production of ammunition can keep up with those um, with those levels. But two, you, you're also going to wear out the tubes, the howitzer tubes and, right. and MLRS tubes. So how do you think they're doing on the maintenance front uh, of, of these artillery systems? Uh, the battle for the Donbass has been wage since early April, right? So we're now in the, well, in the third month of, of, of that fight. What do you think is happening to their ammunition stores? Right. So again, this is kind of going to be almost cocktail napkin math going on here. But uh, but when I, when, I, when I kind of looked at the math as, you know, 50,000 rounds per day, that comes out to like millions of millions of shells since the beginning. Now, I think obviously there's kind of been an escalation in fighting and shelling, um, versus like the first couple of months of the war. But if you buy into the high rates of ammunition consumption, say maybe 20,000 rounds per day, artillery you know, tubes, obviously kind of the barrels wear out over time. The, the math kind of varies, but basically a, a tube will kind of wear out after 10,000 rounds in just in general. And then it needs to be replaced or sent back to the, the factory to the rear to be basically fixed or replaced completely. But the, the trouble comes in when, okay, well, you have these systems, they're firing this much. Well, obviously they were used before the war started. So what was their level of wear and tear before the war started? Um, so it's hard to tell, obviously, but it seems that generally at this point in the war, maybe in a few months that the barrels will start kind of wearing out and they will have to either cycle in more equipment or send equipment to the rear or, you know, decrease the expenditure of rounds per, per tube. Um, as far as like the amount of ammunition, obviously this is going to be hard to estimate, especially for Soviet, you know, Russia, um, Russia air production. Um, I did kind of do a little bit of research on U.S. production in the Cold War because that's kind of more freely available and there's, there's nice kind of figures on that. Um, so like in the mid-90s, you know, after the Cold War ended, the, the U.S. Army actually had 21 million um, artillery projectiles and the Marine Corps had 4 million. Um, so that's about 24 million shell, our shells that were available at the end of the Cold War. So you have to figure Russia probably has, you know, at least that amount, at least stayed saved up from Soviet air, you know, production. But when you when you kind of take into account that okay, you have that those shells were Cold War air shells, they do kind of expire. They they have to be replaced. Um, the shelf life of a typical artillery round is about 20 to 30 years. So a lot of that Soviet era ammunition is probably near the, the end of its useful life. Um, and then you had, you know, the 90s, obviously, were not kind of a high, high peak of Russian defense production in general. So is Russia short of artillery rounds? It's probably not. 
but it is something that should be kind of looked into. If you, if you I mean, say I just did that, some, I just did some yeah. back back of the map, napkin math here, and <laughs> even twenty million shells, right, is uh, well over a year of artillery uh, spend at even at the high level of fifty thousand per day. So it seems like right. you're doing just fine. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what the math was. That was kind of the conclusion I was going to make at the end, that if you think that, you know, that's that's the level they were at before the war, you know, obviously they're probably, you know, 20% through that stock. Uh, the issue kind of then becomes, well, do they want to actually expend all their rounds and artillery that is in reserve in this particular conflict and leave themselves unprepared for any kind of contingencies that occur? Um, not saying that will happen, but that's probably part of the math that's going on. Um, so the U.S. has, you know, a large stock of ammunition. They're sending it to Ukraine. Russia has, you know, probably an even larger stock of ammunition. But as you commit ammunition to this war in Ukraine, the U.S. is limited by, you know, their stocks and also having to take into account, well, if we send this amount of ammunition here, the level of current production that we have is not going to be able to maintain the level of ammunition reserves that we actually need to, to face any kind of contingency that occurs elsewhere in Europe or in the Pacific. So there's a lot of different factors going on here. Um, but that's the kind of like the basics that all kind of need to be taken into account when saying, okay, well, Russia's expended 20% of its ammunition so far in terms of artillery. That's obviously 80% remaining, but how much of that do you really want to spend up in Ukraine and leave yourself open to anything else that might happen? Yep. Mike, uh, what are your thoughts on this? And why do you think they're going after the Belarus supply? There are reports that they took out, I believe, 150,000 tons of ammunition out of Belarus this week. Uh, yeah, let me take that on. Not quite. So there's a depot in Belarus that has 150,000 tons of artillery ammo. I think there's actually a total of 10 depots in Belarus that have artillery ammo. They have quite a bit there. The reason why I think they went there to take out some, we don't know how much. I suspect this first. Uh, the Russia may have quite a bit of supply of artillery ammunition, but not necessarily all types in equal numbers. So they may be out of certain types of ammunitions or running lower. Another reason could be is that it's closer because recently they've had several ammo depots blown up by Ukrainian Tochkas, and it might be closer than having to drag ammo all the way from central and eastern military district. Um, another reason could be is that they are stocking up in advance of uh, perceiving that they might run low in certain categories. That could be because, you know, they probably have less ammo uh, quite a bit less ammo than folks think inherited from the Soviet Union, just because a lot of that ammo is actually distributed between the successor states, right? Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, what have you. But also because during the part, during the period of military reforms, um, visionary thinkers like Anatoly Serdikov, a different Serdikov for those who don't know or don't remember, who was minister of defense before uh, Shoigu, during the reforms, had basically killed the mass mobilization army and was standing up a pretty small permanent force. I think it was around 670, maybe 700,000 strong back towards 2011. And I think they probably cut some of the ammunition stocks because why would they need so much ammunition for a substantially small force? The mass mobilization army was gone. The force was far smaller than even what they started out with on paper. And so in order to save money, they may have cut on some of the stocks that they had. I'm not saying that Russia is going to run short anytime soon. I'm just saying they probably have less than folks anticipate based on that legacy inheritance. That said, at a rate of maybe 15 to 20,000 rounds per day, they could likely sustain this for quite some time. Right. This is just, you know, one person's guessment. I'll, I'll say this one area where we. Uh, probably did not overestimate the Russian military, if anything may have underestimated them, is the extent of their ammunition supplies. That's just my personal uh, impression of it looking at those four months into the war. So the HIMARS, continuing the, the ammunition discussion, the HIMARS are starting to arrive and starting to be used. There was a video of the first strike um, 
from HIMARS. Well, we don't know if it's the first strike, but um, first one that was released publicly on, a, on a, what looks like a Russian base in the uh, Donbass. Um, but the, the number of systems is quite small, um, even though they're much more accurate uh, with GPS guided munitions. Um, Mike, what do you think is the, the optimal way to use these systems, given that they're fairly scarce? Um, and how do you protect them, uh, including from Russian air, air attacks? Okay, well, caveats up front, I've never fired a HIMARS, and I'm not like a U.S. artillery man. So oh, that would be fun, right? It, yeah, but, but like I said, I'm not sure I'm the best person to sort of answer that question. Uh, that said, the main advantage of the system is precision and range, right? The GRMS uh, rocket that it can fire, I think, reaches out to 70 km, and its, uh, its inertial guidance systems is assisted by GPS guidance, so you can get much greater precision out of it. So I think the optimal way to use it is to try to go after high-value targets, logistics, command and control, things like that, because those batteries are going to be available in limited numbers. It's probably best for Ukrainians to not put them too forward of the line. The reason I say that is actually, uh, you know, doctrinally, Russian artillery is much closer to the line of contact, typically, than Western uh, artillery uh, artillery operators. So uh, probably to not put them too close towards the line because you have the advantage of range, and so you should maximize it. Um and uh, use them against targets that you've essentially ident- effectively identified via satellite or drones or, you know, other means. Um, it, it looks like Ukrainians are, are probably going to be doing that with them. And over time, they could attribute a lot of uh, the critical assets that the Russian military needs to sustain the war effort. What it's not going to do, just to be clear, because I've had fo- heard folks ask that is, you know, can this cover down the whole front? Can this compete with Russia and Amalras in the main battle? And the answer is no. No, it can't. Okay, that's not that many pods, and it's not that many systems. It'll take a while for them to get it all. Um, not necessarily in quite in that role, but it could be much more effective uh, if, if used in the right way. You know, I just, yeah, I, I'm not sure they're going to get those systems in those vast numbers that some folks imagine. Right. And... Uh... What do you make, Mike, of the all this activity that we've been seeing in Belarus this week? Uh, not just the grabbing of ammunition, which you've discussed, but there have been some airstrikes conducted by Russian planes from Belarus uh, um, bases. Uh, is, that, is that purely, you think, a tactical decision um, um, that, that, you know, if you're going to strike uh, in, in the West, uh, it's better to do it from Belarus? Um, or do you think there's some sort of attempt to get uh, Belarusian forces, uh, military more involved in this campaign? Yeah, I don't know what all this noise in Belarus is. So Russian forces initially deployed across Belarus. Um, all those systems were there, you know, S-400s, uh, Iskander uh, battalions, what have you. Uh, the, the two districts that were kind of operating out of there, especially Eastern military district, dragged their own Iskander units with them. Um, and and parts of parts of supporting uh, aerospace forces and most of the things they needed too. Um, I'm not sure how much of that is redeployed, to be honest, right? Because remember, Russia was when when they got defeated Kiev, they withdrew through Belarus, and they probably left a number of things behind. So it's kind of a lot of noise, but about a situation that de facto has been um, in place from my point of view since February. Uh, as far as any changes that could be happening, that's a good question looking out forward, right? Is there going to be a, a expanded Russian military presence presence in Belarus? Probably. Are they going to keep some of the systems they deployed originally during the buildup? That would be my best guess, too, that this is going to be the, the status quo moving forward. Um, not sure about all that noise Putin's making regarding... Uh, tactical nuclear weapons. I'm, from a practical standpoint, I don't think it matters at all, but that's just my opinion. Well, and, and to clarify, what we are talking about is uh, that Putin announced that uh, he will deploy uh, some aircraft and Iskander missiles that are nuclear capable to Belarus. He has not announced that he will actually declare, uh, deploy nuclear weapons. And there's some 
Russian nuclear analysts that believe that that chance was zero, that they'll actually deploy nuclear weapons in Belarus. And as, as you say, it's not clear that it actually gains you anything. Henry, yeah. sorry, just to pile on that. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense. There's no nuclear weapon storage in Belarus to begin with, not even a, a temporary storage for it. And it doesn't do anything for Russians. And um, they have they have attempt storage in Kaliningrad. So uh, and they have and they and they have it all across in parts of Western military districts as well. So it doesn't moving these things to Belarus doesn't make don't make a lot of practical sense and wouldn't be a sound uh, uh, signaling move necessarily either. Henry, uh, let's talk about the Russian forces, their losses in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, what do you think is the state of their combined arms capabilities at this point, um, as far as you can tell, just from, from looking at open source? Um, yeah, as far as uh, like Russian conventional forces go, like it's been like the majority of fighting, I think. I think BBC actually came out with this uh, about a week or two ago. Um, the majority of kind of conventional Russian, you know, motorized rifle forces and, you know, tank forces obviously too, are not really directly going in and doing kind of the, the close, you know, fighting that's going on in, in the Eastern Ukraine, at least not on a large scale. Like the majority of fighting, I would say, at least over the past month or two has been kind of the, you know, the, the Donbass, People's Republic, Luhansk, you know, forces have been the, the majority of troops that have actually been involved in getting in close with the Ukrainian forces. Um, uh, kind of like the, the BTGs. Yeah. And that's just cheap cannon fodder, right? People that they don't care about sending into the front lines. Well, There's been a lot of reporting of Chechens that have sort of uh, being recruited perhaps against their will to be sent into this uh, into this culture. Right. Yeah. I mean, I try to stay away from words like cannon fodder because, you know, people get get angry at that kind of word. But uh, it's definitely not as well equipped as the forces were at the beginning. You know, while the Donbass People's Republic was never particularly well equipped of anything. But uh, but you also had the Wagner Wagner troops were, you know, involved in Popsana. Um, I've seen VDV forces involved still at Popsana and uh, Severodonetsk. Um, also, and the Naval for, for, Infantry, just, just to clarify, yeah. VDV is Russian airborne. Yeah, Russian airborne troops. Like, it seems like, you know, all the motorized rifle units and, you know, where's first GTA, where's the Western Military District? It seems like most of those troops are just hanging back providing fire support while, you know, the majority of actual fighting direct fire is being done by, you know, the, the separatist forces and in certain cases, the Naval infantry and the, the VDV. Um, I think Michael's probably better qualified to talk more about the combined arms aspect, but I mean, as, as kind of a general rule, like the, Combined arms has definitely been, you know, a, a point of weakness. It it happens. I've seen it happen occasionally where, you know, actually motorized rifle and tank units are able to coordinate and they're able to get the fires, you know, working properly. But that's definitely been a weak point. Certain units are better at it than other units. It seems like the Naval Infantry and VDV are, as we kind of expected pre-war, they're, they're better, better trained, better equipped in most cases. And they're actually able to, to do combined arms to a limited degree, but the, the motorized rifle units and the tank units have definitely been kind of disappointing so far, I would say, at least from a Russian perspective. Mike, do you want to jump in on this? I mean, yeah, I, I guess it just reinforced the point Henry made that uh, the way it's kind of shaking out now is it looks like Russia is using the units they had mobilized throughout the war from Donetsk and Lugansk as dismounted infantry because they're quite short on infantry and manpower, especially for some of these urban battles. They've been piecing together what looks like airborne naval infantry and other units, including Wagner, for offensive maneuver to make gains, incremental gains to try to push on the flanks. Uh, motor rifle units have been, from my point of view, a disappointment um, in many respects in terms of training and their ability to actually effectively execute maneuvers that they're supposed to be drilled in. But, um, 
now there's sort of uh, reserve battalions that have been formed to start arriving at the front. If you recall, maybe we talked about this last time, which is that the Russian military is creating reserve battalions on the basis of sort of the third main maneuver battalion in uh, the original uh, formation. So these will be composed of volunteers, those who have signed contract servicemen and the remaining officers and professional enlisted. And they have some of the remaining gear and maybe some lower grade gear as well. You see the Russian military pouring, pulling a lot of BMP-1s and MTLBs out of storage, uh, deploying to the battlefield. They are not really for rotation, though, from the looks of it. That was one of the big question marks. What are they going to do with them? It looks like they're going to hold part of the line and reinforce uh, the units there. So um, I, I guess my point is that uh, we are now seeing both sides uh, using second and third echelon forces, reserves and mobilized units. Second, we're seeing them use these forces in high attrition battles to take losses. And I want to correct because I heard about the narrative of, oh, well, the battle for Severodonetsk was a battle in which, you know, the Russian units and their equipment were really attrition. And the answer to that is no, not really. That was the battle into which Russians threw uh, mobilized units from Lugansk and Chechen Rosgardia. And basically, it was, it was a, a grinding fight. Uh, while they redeployed a lot of the better units further south of Lysychansk for a breakthrough at Toshkivka, right? And Ukrainians have been doing some, a lot of the similar things. So they've been depending on territorial defense forces and units that have much lower level of training and equipment. And both sides have now been depending on, let's say, you, uh, soldiers mobilizing in different ways to fill out units with losses, right? So that now when you look at a brigade on the Ukrainian side or you look at a BDG on the Russian side, you know, you don't really know what you're looking at uh, in terms of what's actually, uh, what is the actual composition of that force? What do they have left to fight with in terms of equipment? And who are those troops? You know, what's their level of training? Because many of them were not regular soldiers because the best forces in this war at this point have, have been attrition. They've taken a lot of casualties, both sides. So a lot of the best soldiers, a lot of the best equipment, all of that is gone. Um, I guess that's kind of the the dour note I end that point on. And uh, it looks like it's going to grind on, the sort of contest of wills. So the other thing that happened this week has been a lot of things um, that we've learned this week. But one of them has been some remarkable videos coming out of Ukrainian strikes, UAV strikes, uh, on Russian infrastructure. Uh, there was a strike on uh, an oil refinery, uh, about 150 kilometers from the front, actually, pretty long-range strike with uh, what looks like a Chinese uh, cheap UAV, AliExpress UAV, that uh, you can buy for about 117K uh, US dollars um, and uh, has about eight hours of flight time and looks like the Ukrainians loaded it up with explosives and rammed it into a heat exchanger at this refinery, setting it on fire. There have also been missile strikes on gas platforms, Russian gas platforms, um, off the coast of the Crimea in the Black Sea. Um, do you think that that's uh, something that uh, we should be paying more attention to, Mike? Um, and do you expect more hits on uh, critical infrastructure that the Russians are using? We've seen some hits on railroads, bridges before do you think potentially the Kerch bridge um that connects uh, crimea to to russia uh is is in danger of getting hit uh, by something like this yeah i mean it looks like ukraine is sustaining attacks on russian critical infrastructure where it can't where it can find something within reach uh in general though uh, I, I actually see it as kind of a sustained campaign that's simmering. If you remember, this really peaked in the news maybe about a month ago, where you saw more Ukrainian attacks via different means, some using TV2s, some using other capabilities. So, yeah, it's worth tracking. Um, I've not seen anything that I, that I would say is strategic in terms of effect. But on the whole, I think Ukraine is trying to strike back into the Russian mainland and hit critical infrastructure where it can, which makes sense for them. On um, yeah, on Kirk Strait Bridge, I I don't know. I'm skeptical. Uh, I'm skeptical that there's something that can and that can I, reach. I, 
Aristovich, uh, the Ukrainian um, military advisor to, the, to Zelensky, has said that it, it's a hard target and that there's a lot of uh, air defense around it, right? Yeah, and the kind of thing you'd be able to reach it probably isn't going to do very much damage to the bridge. So that's the other thing to keep in mind. It's not the the question isn't even just reaching the target. The question is also can you reach the target with something that could affect damage to it? You know, a refinery is likely to go up in flames if you hit it with an explosive or a fuel storage area. A large bridge is not. Yeah, and we we're seeing that in terms of uh, Russian. Uh, attacks in Ukraine infrastructure, right? Taking out bridges, uh, electrical substations, you know, rail, rail links, and, and the Ukrainians being able to work around it and still resume operations. So it shows you how difficult it is to have lasting effects with these uh, one-off campaigns. Uh, Henry, uh, you've talked a lot about logistics on Twitter and both kind of the volumes of both ammunition and other supplies that the Russians have to bring in uh, a lot of it over rail and trucks into um, the the Donbass uh, to resupply their troops. Um, talk to us about those challenges and 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 uh, what we can interpret from that. As far as this challenges to the the Russians, as far as yeah. supplying their troops, are okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, we probably talked about this before on this podcast. Or- uh, square space but i mean russia's logistics is primarily rail bound it, it kind of always been that it's always been that way um i think uh, there was an extra article i think uh i think it was a world of rocks that pull up a shit uh, basically saying that they're they're basically they have the rail hub and then from that rail hub you can basically push 100 to 200 kilometers from it using trucks um now, there's been some debate on if Russia is running out of trucks. Uh, personally, I I kind of looked at it. Um, I don't really believe that they're running out of trucks at this point, at least not when you take into account the level of attrition that their their maneuver forces have taken. Now, could now if Russia had sustained a ton of truck losses and their their basically their forces were still intact maybe there's kind of a, a logistical bottleneck in terms of number of trucks um, that are able to kind of keep the, keep the BGGs supplied with ammunition, fuel, you know, et cetera. Um, I think the challenge mainly is um, basically once a unit's involved in fighting, they have basically, you know, they have the, the supplies that they carry with them. The, which is generally about three days, um, then they, they need to basically get resupplied from the rear to kind of continue their combat operations. Um, now, now Ukraine's hitting the, the supply lines going in. They were doing, you know, a lot better job, you know, at the beginning of the war, just because, you know, Russia kind of, through troops toward Kiev, but didn't really secure the supply lines. Now that things have settled down um, and there's not really a huge amount of Ukrainian territorial defense forces that were left in the rear to basically strike Ukrainian or Russian supply lines, the Russian supply lines are more secure. So that means that basically any kind of attrition or to Russian or logistics at this point has to be artillery fires. So I think the logistical situation in terms of their supply lines and trucks is okay. The question kind of becomes, okay, going back to the ammunition, is Russia running low on particular types of ammunition, um, any kind of precision-guided munitions? Is that a concern for them? I don't really know yet. It doesn't really seem like it at the moment with this Belarus stuff happening. Um, maybe maybe it does become a concern in the coming weeks. Um, but overall, I think the logistical picture for Russia right now is reasonably good. I think uh, I think if the war goes on for like six more months, which it looks likely to do, that then you kind of start running into shortages of you know stuff that would actually negatively impact you know severely negatively impact Russia's ability to conduct offensives. But right now, I think um, 
there's not really a, a huge problem. Um, if the if the high Mars are utilized and they they're able to successfully hit Russia's you know rail nodes that are deep behind the lines, maybe that becomes a problem because it's hard to unload stuff from a train. It's a lot harder to unload stuff from a train than it is from a truck. So those those rail hubs are are vulnerable if the Ukrainians can hit them. So that's why generally, if you're unloading ammunition or a lot of bulky supplies, you want to do it far out of artillery range. Now that the high Morris has arrived and it's potentially capable of hitting those rail hubs in the rear, um, I think I think maybe maybe we see more of that, and that would affect Russia's ability to supply. But you know, hard to tell. You know, let's keep keep looking at that. Mike, do you, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I was just going to add that, yeah, I definitely don't think Russia's going to run out of trucks. Even if they run out of military trucks, they can mobilize a lot from uh, the civilian sector or from other ministries across Russia. Because you know, Russia has many other ministries with different types of capacities involved from, you know, Ministry of Emergencies, National Guard, Border Guards, various other units. So they have a lot of kind of what you would call militarized American military ministries and then there's a whole civilian commercial sector I definitely agree with Henry that okay the longer the war goes on the longer ammunition and munitions in general will become a problem for Russia because nobody has infinite ammunition and nobody has uh, defense industrial production capacity that can substantially replace ammunition used in wartime right a lot of folks kind of imagine that there's this defense industrial capacity out there but often you'll find you know countries can produce uh, artillery shells to the to the equivalent of what in a war they might use up in one month, and that's you know their annual production, right? So uh, these are the kind of things that get stockpiled, but then get used pretty fast. You know that's a fascinating point because I do think it's probably one of the critical lessons for the U.S. in this war, right? Is that you know we've talked a lot about all the problems with the plan and, and some of the challenges the Russians are having, but you know, the reality is that even we do not have the industrial capacity anymore to produce not just ammunition, but particularly some of the more advanced weaponry that is much more complicated to manufacture. You know, people are asking, why aren't we sending more howitzers or more um, javelins to, to Ukraine? And the reality is we don't have that many and it's hard to manufacture and it takes a very long time, right? And it does pose a question if we're in a great power war with, let's say, China, in the coming decades and it lasts more than a few months, how do we sustain it uh, and not run out of critical weapon platforms and, and critical ammunition? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think folks don't really appreciate uh, how little defense industrial capacity we have uh, it, it sort of in peacetime and that could really be mobilized in the event of a large conventional conflict that uses ammunition at this rate. And often I think they also don't appreciate that a lot of times Countries are a bit reticent to give capabilities they have and weapons they have because that's actually a large percentage of what they have available, and they don't know when they're going to get more, right? So maybe it's unimpressive that France gave something like 18 Caesar uh, artillery pieces to the Ukrainians, but that's 25% of all the of, of their entire arsenal of what they had, you know? And a lot of the other countries gave many of their advanced ATGMs, right, the Javelins, there's many years backlog to get javelins now, right? Um, same with Stinger, same with other systems. Actually, quite a few years. I think folks don't realize how much Europeans are likely going to spend uh, out of their budgets to replenish their stocks of what they've just given so far. And by the way, we've talked a lot about the challenges Russia will have because of the ban on imports of semiconductors. But the reality is that we have a huge chips shortage in this country as well. And, um, of course, most of these weapons systems require quite a few uh, semiconductors, and, and that's um, also um, impacting production. I've talked to a number of folks in the defense industry and are having a hard time procuring what they need uh, for a variety of different critical systems, um, uh, anything from radios all the way on to more sophisticated weapons platforms. Um, Mike, uh, we uh, let's go back to the tactical situation a little bit. So you had uh, Severodonetsk getting captured by the Russians, Ukrainian executing Ukrainian forces executing a tactical withdrawal, um, and they now have high ground in Lysychansk um, across the river. Uh, what what do you think um, 
is uh, their potential to hold it. Um, you know, obviously, um, the Russians need to take it if they're going to say that they, they control at least the Luhansk province. Yeah, so that's the next part of this fight. And the real issue is not so much Lysychansk, but now that Russian forces are just on the outskirts south of it, even though Lysychansk is, is technically uh, on the map geographically, it's a high ground, uh, I think the Russian aim will be to cut the ground lines of communication to Lysychansk and make that the next siege, right? And then over time, what's going to happen is, let's just assume hypothetically, they're successful in doing that, then they're going to run into the next Ukrainian defensive line running from Bakhmut to Severus. That's what I think. That's where I think this could end up potentially uh, later in July. And I don't know what forces they have and what they have available moving on from that. It depends on the amount of replacements they can find. It depends on the rate of attrition. But I think the Russian ultimate objective is to set up a two-pronged offensive on Slavansk and Kramatorsk, right? Having one axis from the north in the Zoom, which has been unsuccessful thus far, and a separate effort from the east, assuming that they get past Bakhmut. And this is why I'm rather skeptical that this, they'll be able to pull this off, just because Slavansk and Kramatorsk are heavily fortified. Ukrainians have had a lot of time to build fortifications there. Uh, the river represents a natural boundary, and Russian force will have to cross the river somewhere north. Uh, still beyond the zoom. And uh, as you've seen, their advances are very slow for a very obvious reason. They don't have the forces and they're leveraging artillery to essentially blast these towns. Uh, and then once they've substantially degraded those positions, Ukrainians conduct a tactical retreat and Russian units move up a bit, <clears throat> try to establish a new line, move up artillery and start all over. Right. But this is a slow pace of advance. And it, it will give Ukraine time, some months, to get enough Western equipment and munitions to attain some parity of capability. So it's going to it's going to get costlier for Russian forces to progress, I think, if you look out maybe two months further into this conflict, which isn't looking very far, but maybe it's the best somebody like me can do. The other thing that happened this week is that Evgeny Prigozhin uh, got a Hero Russia Award medal from Putin. And yes, this is the same Prigozhin that is uh, often known as Putin's chef uh, because he supplies so much of um, food to the Russian military and other parts of the Russian government. Uh, he also is believed to run the Internet Research Agency that uh, has been famous for the last seven or eight years, um, doing a lot of um, uh, trolling on various social media sites. And of course, he also runs always believed to run the Wagner Group um, that has been present in Syria, Africa, uh, and now in this fight for the Donbass. Um, presumably there's a good reason uh, why he's been given uh, this medal um, uh, that's not just uh, Putin liking him. Uh, Henry, what, what are you seeing in terms of Wagner Group's performance in the Donbass um, to the extent that we can tell anything from open source? Um, well, honestly, I haven't really been able to look at Wagner that much because they're, they're pretty hard to track. Um, I've seen some of their stuff on Telegram. Um, I think it's generally kind of assumed that they're performing better uh, than most, at least Russian conventional forces. Um, beyond that, it's pretty hard to tell. I think I'll probably just defer to Michael on this one. <laughs> Mike, do you have any thoughts on Wagner? Because in Syria, they, they weren't extremely effective, right? What? I actually thought they were pretty effective in Syria, especially relative to the other forces there. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd say this. Okay. There aren't that many Wagner troops in this war, maybe a few thousand tops. But they're actually better equipped, and some of them have much higher veterancy than regular line Russian motor rifle infantry. And... Wagner is hiring up volunteers, and in many ways, um, you're probably going to see the Russian military. And, and they pay well, right? They pay better than the Russian military. So they do, except the Russian military is now paying really, really well because they're offering contracts that go up to 250,000 to 300,000 rubles per month. And in cases, they're offering even basic contracts for several months' service starting at you know, and that's about forty five hundred bucks a, uh, a month. So that, that's it's not, a lot. It's yeah. it's I'll put it this way. It's like five times on average salary anywhere. So it's a lot of money. Um, 
and they're offering to pay off people's debts. They're sort of offering pay starting at 100, maybe 150,000 rubles plus benefits and all this in terms of paying off debts. It depends. Long story short, they're calling people into, you know, into a vancomat, into the commissariats and sort of asking them to sign up and, and throwing offers at them. And Wagner is also trying to hire people up and essentially offering a better deal, saying that, hey, you should sign up. You'll get better working conditions, better equipment. Um, they'll pay well, too, and are much less likely to try to cheat you out of the money later on, whereas military institution, uh, not as much. Because uh, believe it or not, um, Wagner actually has a decent reputation for paying people what they're owed, whereas... The Russian military has a reputation of writing people off, cheating them out of payouts or potentially their families, and a whole list of extended shenanigans. So I was actually uh, sort of rather, um, rather skeptical of the impact Wagner troops would make early on this war, and they hadn't appeared much in the earlier phases. But now that you see this tremendous force exhaustion and a lot of uh, very low quality troops being used by the Russian side, not just by the Russian side, but in particular by the Russian side. And now see that there are areas where Wagner's being combined with other troops to try to achieve breakthroughs. So it's it may grow in significance, and that's uh, that's an area to watch. Yep. I'll just say that that uh, our friend Dara Masakat uh, is not in agreement with you on the quality of the Russian Wagner forces. So maybe she'll agree in the future to come back and uh, you guys can uh, can have a little bit of a debate on the quality of the R Wagner troops. Well, well, Dara and I are good friends. We agree a lot, but we don't agree on everything. And that's a good thing because we agreed on everything. They only need one of us. Exactly. Um, Henry, Mike, um, any last thoughts from you on anything we haven't yet covered? Uh, particularly want to ask also, uh, we've had a lot of strikes on Kiev in the last 24 hours. Uh, anything to make of that, that the Russians have intensified uh, their missile strikes um, uh, in, 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 in recent times? Um, or is that just um, a tactical development that we shouldn't pay too much attention to? Maybe, Mike, we'll start with you and then Henry. Uh, the only two things I would say is that looking at... Uh, some of the geomapping that folks have done online, it looked like in Kiev, they're all striking around a particular defense industrial facility that manufactures guidance systems and various things for missiles. And they're missing it. So they're hitting sort of, you know, a residential building here or something near kindergarten there. But that's not the first time they struck that area. They're striking this area repeatedly. It's not the first barrage. And the only thing that seems to be kind of in the middle of where they're striking is this one particular plant. So that's kind of a best guess of what they're trying to aim for. As far as the timing, well, you know, we can all speculate that it's something to do with G7 or upcoming uh, other summits, and it's a signal, you know, maybe a signal uh, to, to the other political leaders at that summit that Russia has options for escalation to try to turn from doing something, from trying to deter them from enacting some some types of more uh, harsher interventionist policies, but I'm being completely wonkish now because I don't know, and I, I don't like the road that takes me down. So I, I'd leave it at that. Well, one thing it definitely demonstrates is that they're not out of missiles. That's been predicted for many months of this campaign, but they still seem to have uh, enough in their arsenal to do these to do these hits. Um, Henry, any any last thoughts from you? Thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um... I just wanted to hit on this a couple things about kind of the the lead up and kind of where Ukraine's defense industry was at and military in general was at before the fighting started, um, because we didn't really touch on that. I was kind of expecting it. But uh, when you look at like Ukraine's GDP and defense spending leading up to the current day, like they spend three percent on their of their GDP on defense at least pre-war, you know. Well, obviously, twenty fourteen there was fighting, but it was about three percent. And then you look at a country like Poland; its GDP, the GDP of Poland, is actually three times higher than Ukraine's, and they spend three times as much on defense. And you look at kind of the number of systems both Ukraine and Poland have. 
like people kind of get get into this habit of looking at okay well ukraine has a thousand tanks and poland might have 800 tanks so ukraine actually is kind of stronger but kind of this looking at taking a step back and kind of analyzing how ukraine is performing relative to how much they spent i think they're performing quite well given the circumstances but but kind of like it gets lost because uh because people have because ukraine was like one of the largest militaries in europe but where does that kind of spending go like um if you're not spending if you're spending three times less than what poland's spending but you actually have more systems there's going to be shortfalls in other areas unless you know poland is operating a lot less efficiently than ukraine's military is which you know probably isn't true um so just kind of actually steven zaloga actually gave me this idea of kind of just kind of sticking a step back looking at defense spending and kind of just looking at you know what kind of went wrong with ukraine's military spending leading up to the war and what what went right um and kind of taking looking at other nato countries and comparing the two um and other otherwise just hitting on the ammunition kind of it you know uh production rates like the u.s for example there's one factory in pennsylvania that that makes 155 millimeter ammunition and that factory produces about fifteen thousand a month and that's probably one of the most efficient factories at producing 155 millimeter ammunition but given given that ukraine's consuming you know maybe five thousand rounds a day that's that's three days of ammunition there over one month and obviously the u.s army is going to want one much much of that ammunition so there's only there's only so much to spare um and the west basically needs to step up 155 millimeter production if they're going to continue to supply ukraine because uh there's a few producers of 152 millimeter which is the primary soviet rounds that ukraine uses but those are few and far between like 155 millimeter has to be the round of the future for ukraine um so yeah that's basically it for me uh thanks for having me on thank you henry mike any last thoughts from you uh sure i'll stop with uh henry said so none of us are bottomless fountains of ammunition and i think people will be surprised how low our production capacity is and that's a huge thing to look into in the coming months uh maybe a final comment for me on how we started the conversation right which was i got sidetracked and i remembered I never explained my tidbit on Ruskoy, who's titularly head of the main uh, operational director of the general staff. So to answer the question, we began this whole conversation with as to who's in charge. As far as I'm concerned, I actually think the most person consistently in charge of this war effort is him. No matter whose name I hear, who gets appointed and which generals are in charge of which groupings, it looks like he and, and probably the operational director are in many ways still tying this together or trying to coordinate it. That's my best stab. As to, but he's uh, he's back in Moscow, so he's not on the front lines or anywhere close, right? Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know where he is. So he he seems to be both in Moscow. He appeared in this little tent they set up to make it look like a command place with uh, Shoigu, with Zitko near him. So who knows where he spends a lot of time. I assume he spends his time in the directorate uh, and and probably back in Moscow. But long story short, I think I think that's probably the person most involved in the overall coordination, as we've seen several names come and go in uh, in terms of who's supposed to be in charge of the Russian war effort. And what what do we know about his background? Oh, he's uh, I mean, he's another career officer and long time in the general staff, actually. Uh, he's, you know, he's a colonel general. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't get too far into it, except to say that uh like the rest of me, he has a combined arms uh, background and um, what else exciting? Co- co- combat experience? Yeah, I think so. I'm not like his biographer. Uh, I have to look. It's a good thing Dara's on the call. She should speak. <laughs> she might remember his <laughs> background better. All right, we'll he's, try. Been, he's been in this position for quite some time, actually, for a number of years. So... We'll, we'll, we'll try to get Dara on uh, next time. But uh, thanks, to everyone, for joining us yet again. Thank you, Henry, uh, for jumping in uh, here with, with Mike and me. And, Mike, always um, thank you so much for your thoughts. Have a good evening, everyone. Yep.
На все морское будет щедро. Я вам расскажу за всю Одессу. Эй, Путин, вас никто не верит здесь серьез. Вы гроза для НАТО и ЕС, допустим. А в Одессе вы обычный поц. Вам здесь не бросятся на плечи. Вам здесь не вынесут цветы. Мы все бендеровцы, конечно. Остапа Бендерокин. Не сыти, подплывайте ближе. Вам все равно в аду гореть. Ведь здесь в Одессе, как в Париже. Увидеть раз и умереть. Я вам расскажу за всю Одессу. Эй, Путин, здесь никто не верит, здесь серьез. Вы гроза для НАТО и ЕС, допустим. А в Одессе вы типичный босс. Идите нахуй.